Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. I'm Greg Dalton. What or who is to blame for California's devastating wildfires? PG&E was put into bankruptcy through their own criminal negligence. And we've got to hold them accountable and come up with a way of stopping wildfires from happening in the first place. As far back as the 1990s, PG&E was ignoring the fire danger posed by aging equipment and overgrown trees. Not even hefty fines from the California Public Utilities Commission could get them to clean up their act. We fined them over $100 million. That was chump change to them. They continued to pocket necessary maintenance monies and profit from it while the system deteriorated. Faulty power lines, combined with drought conditions and dying trees worsened by climate change, sparked California's most deadly wildfire ever. On today's program, we welcome two panels of guests to talk about fires, energy, and the future of power in California. First up, we hear from Diane Grunick, former commissioner with the California Public Utilities Commission, J.D. Morris, energy reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and Mark Tony, executive director of the Utility Reform Network, a consumer advocacy group. We invited a representative from PG&E to join us, but they declined to participate. We begin with a personal story. Patty Garrison and her husband have filed one of the many lawsuits that are now pending against PG&E. The Garrisons lived in the town of Paradise for 30 years before their home was destroyed by the campfire. Patty Garrison tells us what happened that night. When I first heard of the fire, I was actually in Kauai. I got a call from my daughter without saying goodbye, tells me that they were just going to all jump in the same car together and basically die. She calls me a bit later and says they survived going through the flames with the horses. After a few days, we were able to find out that my house was gone. And my daughter's house didn't burn until the second day of the fire. Essentially, what our lawsuit is demanding or asking for from PG&E is that the fire victims' lives are made whole again. It was record-breaking how many warnings that the weather department contacted our power companies and let them know that we had dangerous weather conditions for power lines, and nothing was ever done. It's just infuriating that that kind of negligence um, has decimated a town and is continuing to kill people. PG&E first and foremost wants to protect its stockholders. I'm not asking much. I'm just asking that things are done correctly. And for the purpose of number one is the safety of these rural communities. We just want to make sure that this never happens again. That was former Paradise resident Patty Garrison. She and her husband are suing the utility PG&E. Diane Grunick, your response hearing that personal story, one of many, many stories... Uh, of loss and pain and seeking seeking justice. I mean, first of all, it's just devastating to hear it. You know, it's just sort of incomprehensible to even imagine your entire community being destroyed and, and people dying. Um, what I think is just shocking is there was a hearing at the agency where I used to be a commissioner, the Public Utilities Commission, on Monday. And you can actually go online through the CPUC website and listen to it. So I did yesterday in preparation. And they had um, one of the members of PG&E's board of directors um, speak. And he was just point blank. We don't have an adequate culture of safety at PG&E. And 
I never, I've been in this energy world for 40 years. And believe me, I've seen lots of problems with utilities. But to actually realize, how did we get in this stage where a major official is just saying, we don't have an adequate culture. We have to fix it. Well, that's what we'll, we'll talk about right now. Um, J.D. Morris, why don't you tell us the, the companies in bankruptcy, what are some of the, the battle lines? You've got people scrambling, uh, trying to get, shift the cost, shift the blame, <laughs> lay out the battle lines. Uh, well, one of the big battle lines definitely involves um, all of the people that um, are suing them because of the wildfires, both from the campfire in 2018 and, of course, um, the horrible fires in the North Bay the year before that. Those lawsuits all got stayed when they filed for bankruptcy, so now um, those people are a party in the bankruptcy court, um, and they are interjecting themselves all over the place, um, as they should be. But there's so much uncertainty for those people now about when they're going to get paid, how much they are going to get paid, and how that will all play out. Um, so that was my reaction listening to her story, um, definitely. A lot of the fighting, I think, going forward is going to be about how this company spends its money and how it restructures itself. Because at the end of the day, PG&E has to come out of bankruptcy as a new company in, in some form, and we don't yet know what that will look like. There's a lot of different options um, that they'll be exploring. Mark Tony, some of those options are split it in half, uh, split rural, urban. What, you know, you advocate for the, vo the voice of consumers, of ratepayers. What do you think should, should happen or not happen in the reconstruction of, the, of this utility you know, coming out of the ashes? No matter what happens, we have to hold PG&E and whatever successor there is accountable for negligent acts. PG&E was not put into bankruptcy by climate change. PG&E was put into bankruptcy through their own criminal negligence. And we've got to hold them accountable and come up with a way of stopping wildfires from happening in the first place. We have to come up with a way of when fires do start, of getting them put out as soon as possible before they become major fires. So what I think is very important is that no matter what the formation of PG&E, that the regulators have standards, that the public has standards, and we have the right to safe, clean, affordable, energy that is what we pay for every month. J.D. Morris, one of the things that being debated is, is, um, is the, the company liable in any case, or are they only liable for negligence? This idea, I want, don't want to use this term in inverse oh, condemnation, because I have no <laughs> idea what that means. I've read it many times in the newspaper, and I still, my head hurts when I think, so strict liability is what you call it. Yeah. So, you know, tell us about this, the liability, if they're, if they're liable only for negligence, or if they're liable in more broader ways. Okay, so yeah, this is a bit of an arcane topic, I think, before these fires started, but it's super important. California has this principle. Uh, the easiest way to understand it is to think of it as strict liability. It's a legal doctrine, technically called inverse condemnation, but that's the last time I'll say that word. Um, <laughs> and what it means is that in California, utilities can be held liable, legally liable, for wildfires caused by their equipment, even if they were not negligent, even if they followed all of the applicable laws, um, they can still be held responsible for that. And PG&E sees that as a really big problem. The credit rating agencies see that as a big problem for all utilities in the state, actually. Um, PG&E tried to reform it before the campfire, and they were not able to do that. Um, so now I think that conversation is coming up again. Governor Newsom unveiled a list of proposals um, for what to do about this whole issue of utilities and wildfires going forward. And one of the things on the table, there are several options, but one of them is taking another look at this strict liability doctrine and possibly moving toward a model more based on fault. Um, but that could be controversial in the legislature, so we'll see.
there are several other ideas too. Diane Grunick, what uh, responsibility do regulators bear here? Because uh, you know they have the the job of overseeing this, and uh, it's more sexy to talk about uh, solar renewable energy than it is safety. I mean, was safety a big f focus? How many times did you get briefed <laughs> well, on safety? Well, these fires these fires didn't happen when I was there. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but but did but, you talk a lot about safety when you bring up a very good point? I mean, generally people in California. California want to become regulators. Um, we do care about rates. We do care about affordability. But there's all this shiny, fun stuff called clean energy and climate. And um, how can we change the world and really deal with things that way? When I was a commissioner, um, I can't even recall having more than maybe one or two briefings on safety that it just wasn't in the forefront. Now, since then, it's changed, I think, pretty dramatically. There's a safety division. I know that um, there are regular briefings. The staff is enlarged. In fact, one of the recommendations in this report that the governor put out on Friday was we need to do even more. You know, we need to get more employees at the regulators who really understand safety deep down. But there's this big tension that, again, um, these are complex issues. I think we all wish we could just, you know, wave the wand, which is as a regulator, you hear evidence, you hear, you know, so a lot of these policy concerns that it, Mark is so um, absolutely correct that affordability is just a huge issue in California across everything, you know, housing, electricity, et cetera. But what we don't have are the regulators literally sitting inside the offices just down the street at 77 Beale Street, PG&E headquarters, and really understanding, okay, um, here's a 500-page decision that came out. How much is that being implemented and understood by thousands and thousands of PG&E employees? Uh, J.D. Morris, uh, there's going to be, as a result of these fires, um, the utilities in California and perhaps the western United States are going to be turning off uh, the, what are they called, de-energizing, turning off the power more frequently. Um, and that can happen even in urban areas far away from fire area. Tell us how that is going to work. Right. I don't know that most people out there really appreciate how much this could change going forward. But last year, for the first time ever, Pacific Gas and Electric followed the lead of San Diego, which has been doing this for many years, and decided to start turning off the power during times of high fire danger. It was pretty messy rolling it out. There was some controversy with how they did it. But what they realized in the interim, because the campfire happened in November, was that they actually need to expand that program. And so a couple months ago, I think, they came out with a plan to vastly expand the scope of their forced uh, blackout program. And what that means is that any of PG&E's electric customers, they say any of them could have lose their power Dur sometime during fire season because of the fire danger, regardless of whether you actually live in a high fire danger area. And the reason for that, as best I can understand it at least, is because they have expanded it so that they're also going to be de-energizing the high voltage transmission lines that they used to not turn off. And transmission lines, you can think of like, they're like the freeways of the electrical grid, whereas distribution lines are more like surface streets, city streets. And if you, you know, shutting off, like closing down city streets, a neighborhood is a much more limited thing than closing down a whole interstate. You have a lot more people that can be affected. So that means that even if you live here in San Francisco, if we're being served by a transmission line in a high fire danger area and PG&E decides to turn that off, the power could be out for you. So expect a lot more blackouts going forward. We don't know how many, I guess, we'll see this summer, but... It could happen. Mark Tony? If I can add upon that, it's being euphemistically called a public safety power shutoff. From our standpoint, it needs to be a last resort and it needs to be temporary. It is no substitute for a safe electrical system. And here's why. When they do this type of shutoff, before they can turn the power back on, they have to inspect every mile 
of the lines that has been shut off so that the average time of this type of shutoff is 72 hours. That's three full days that when they implement it, you will be without electricity. So that's why we believe this should be a last resort, temporary until they can get their act together, get the trees trimmed, get the power lines insulated, whatever they need to do. Because remember, we are paying them to deliver safe, reliable, clean electricity. Now we're paying them to shut us off. <laughs> Makes no <laughs> sense. Dan Grunick, you can respond to that. And I also wanted you to uh, address whether all of this volatility is going to hurt California's climate goals, because the state has relied on PG&E, which has been a partner in moving toward cleaner electricity. And now is that future thrown into doubt? So I want to put this issue in a different context, which is we have about... 50 municipal utilities in California. And those are ones that basically they, um, their officials are elected by the people and they're very involved in their communities. Sacramento has one. Um, we have a cabin up north in Trinity County and that has a local utility. And so think about how we're going to deal with these issues where it's not necessarily the utility that everybody has figured out they hate, but it is a utility that you feel very connected to, that you feel it's been doing the best it, it can. And the other concerning part of this is that our municipal utilities are in rural areas a lot that are very poor in California. And so they don't have shareholders that they can go to if they are hit with these devastating fires um, and say, hey, you know, and we're going to cut off your dividends and, you know, whatever. We just want to be able to take care of our people who, you know, have a suffered damages or worse. And they um, are in the exact same situation because they also are vulnerable to these fires. And that's what I feel personally there hasn't been enough attention to because it's one thing if you um, are dealing with sort of the investors and the bad guys out there. It's another thing if these are the utilities that are part of our community, what is going to be their solution? Um, they can't raise rates you know, double rates where already, you know, 40, 50 percent of their community is below poverty line. So that's sort of a context I have. And then let's throw on top of it your question, which is, OK, we've got all these goals on climate in California. We are proud to be, you know, the, the world's leader in climate. Thank God we're doing that. But it's costly. This is not free. We have to um, over 50% of our greenhouse gas emissions in California come from transportation. We have to very quickly move to electrification of our transportation system and get away from fossil-fired cars and other transportation. Well, that requires a whole lot of installing charging stations, having better you know, infrastructure out there, and the utilities, for better or worse, are connected to that because it's increasing the electricity. It's the same thing with decarbonizing our buildings. Um, right now, we actually have more emissions coming from buildings in California than from our electricity supply because we've been so successful on renewables. Again, this costs money, which we've been looking for. The game plan was a lot of that was going to be funded through rates. And this is this huge tension that basically the wheels could fall off everything um, if we don't really proceed carefully. And it's, it's not clear what is that answer to bring in a lot of money for all these things we have to do. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, thank you. My name is Deborah Moore. And you talked about how there the PG&E person said there was a lack of a culture of safety. And, you know, San Bruno happened a while ago. And that was a huge focus that they were negligent. So why hasn't it changed? So for those who don't know, San Bruno, a city just south of San Francisco, in 2010, there was a really bad gas pipeline explosion in the middle of the night or early in the morning. And it killed, I think, eight people and destroyed 38 homes. It was a huge controversy. 
Years later, PG&E was convicted of several felonies, and so they are actually on probation because you can't send a company to prison is what their probation judge pointed out recently. But there's actually an entire proceeding at the California Public Utilities Commission about PG&E's safety culture, and I believe it came originally out of San Bruno. It has also recently expanded to look at wildfires, and the Public Utilities Commission is now asking these big questions and actually having public hearings where they're sort of asking, okay, what's going on? Why hasn't this company improved in the way that we want to see it improved? And should it be taken over by the government? Should the gas and electric side split up? I don't know. I mean, I wish there was an easier, more straightforward answer to that question, but it's being looked at. There are consultants doing audits, and it's, it's a lot. Let's get to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hello, my name is David Cherling. Uh, PG&E has been known as a bad actor with these recent fires. Uh, there's been talk about turning PG&E into a public utility that hasn't been discussed yet tonight. Can you please talk about that? Mark Tony? I think the most important thing, whether PG&E is public or private, is the accountability that they haven't had. You know, the safety culture is a meaningless term. Safety performance <laughs> is what people expect. I would like to see proposals on public takeover of PG&E. I have not seen any yet. I want to be uh, caution people about dividing it up into small pieces where the most attractive parts of the system, where you have high population density, say San Francisco, East Bay, South Bay, form their own municipalities and insulate themselves from the fire risk that the poor rural communities have. Right now we have a system where risk and cost are spread over a large number of customers, and I think we're gonna wanna continue to do that. The, the campfire, I live in Oakland, I, we could barely breathe. Work in San Francisco, we could barely breathe for weeks. We are all being affected. We all need to be part of the solution. We're talking about climate, wildfires, and energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And we've been hearing from Mark Tony of the Utility Reform Network, Diane Grunick, formerly with the California Public Utilities Commission, and J.D. Morris of the San Francisco Chronicle. I met Alex Guinness here at Climate One, and he, honestly, I had never thought about people with disabilities fleeing wildfires. If fit teenagers perish fleeing fires, what are the chances people have in wheelchairs? Who's looking out for them? Alex Guinness is a policy and research specialist with the World Institute on Disability. Please join me in welcoming him to the Climate One stage. Well, Alex, thanks, thanks for joining us. A lot of the people who, the fatalities of the fires recently are elderly and people with disabilities. So tell us about that. We at the World Institute on Disability, uh, we started about five years ago a project called New Earth Disability. As I increasingly realized, people with disabilities are more vulnerable in a changing world. That I myself, I use a power wheelchair, I acquired a spinal cord injury at age 16, and I need the medical system. I need uh, electric power at night, and if we're going to be running off of intermittent renewables, I need to be able to plug in my wheelchair. I need to be able to charge my chair. I have plenty of friends that uh, in their daily lives need access to the built environment that we've created. And uh, as climate change progresses, and uh, I ended up moving from energy storage over to the World Institute on Disability because we started looking at uh, when climate change hits, everybody else has been saying this is going to cause disability. This is going to lead to death, medical harm. They have this term disability-adjusted life years uh, that puts a numerical value on how disabled you become due to some climactic or environmental change. And we said we need to flip that on its head because people with disabilities are a constituency. They're a group. They have individual needs. They have rights. They have human rights. And they have rights to access to a safe environment. That all gets compromised as the environment changes, as we get 
more extreme weather, storms, natural disasters, the built environment gets disrupted. Uh, people with all sorts of disabilities lose access to caregivers, the housing, the specialized developed housing. I myself have you know, an elevator and a roll-in shower, and that's difficult to reacquire. Uh, people with disabilities have fewer assets. They have uh, uh, higher rates of poverty, uh, lower median and average incomes, uh, all sorts of things that already living in a marginalized state, already relying on uh, what ends up being kind of a fragile system, as the climate changes, uh, it just endangers them in all sorts of ways. So what are the lessons after these uh, recent tragic uh, fires in California? Is there, are there plans to, to help people living with disabilities next time? Because there will be more fires. Um, what's, what's being done to, to make it better next time? Uh-huh. Um, organizations are trying. Governments are trying. The way that disaster preparedness works is so much is done at the county level. Uh, counties and cities have to have emergency preparedness plans, and there are certain laws that dictate uh, including access and functional needs, AFN, it's kind of the, the technical term there, into county disaster readiness plans. What ends up happening is that there's no concrete guidance, and there's no concrete guidance uh, in general on how to address access and functional needs, and certainly as we look across California at the different geographies and the different climate vulnerabilities for different areas of the state, it's difficult to replicate that. Alex Guinness is uh, with the World Commission on uh, Disabilities. Alex, thanks for joining us up here. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. We now welcome our second panel. Hunter Stern represents the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 1245. Loretta Lynch is a past president of the California Public Utilities Commission. And Laura Wisland is senior manager of Western States Energy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. San Francisco has recently floated the idea of a government takeover of PG&E. I asked Hunter Stern what that would mean for its unionized workers. For our members, it's, it's not a good step. Uh, there's no portability between uh, benefit plans. So if you're a worker at PG&E here in San Francisco or nearby and the city takes it over, um, you can't just step into the job in San Francisco and take your benefits with you. Um, we have to negotiate wages. That's not such a big deal. Uh, but it would make uh, experienced workers have to choose. Um, do they want to stay with the company where their benefits are, or do, are they willing to take less uh, and work for the new employer? Loretta Lynch, what do you think about governments coming in? We have these uh, investor-owned utilities uh, that are profit-driven. That's led to lots of problems. What about government, the people stepping in? Well, the problem here is that we have socialized the costs of PG&E's criminal negligence, and they want us to keep the benefits private. If we're going to socialize the costs, we should socialize the benefits. Or if it stays private, we should have a say as California in the utilities future. When the government bailed Chrysler out, the workers got a seat on the board, as did the government. The victims should have a seat on PG&E's board. The consumers should have a seat on PG&E's board. The mayor of San Bruno should have a seat on PG&E's board. And the government should have a seat on PG&E's board. And that should happen before we even begin a conversation about liability changes or any bailouts. Hunter Stern, the union's pretty close with, with uh, PG&E. What do you think about union board members, fire victims on the board? Uh, I think the, the leadership, uh, whether it's the board or senior leadership that is now coming in, because all the, all the old leaders at PG&E and 10 of the 13 board members are no longer there. So it's not PG&E that it used to be. That doesn't mean it's going to be better. But from our standpoint, nine times out of 10, nine issues out of 10, maybe nine and a half, What's good for the customers or good for our workers and vice versa. Our guys are out there working. Um, they're providing the service, sometimes under pretty difficult conditions, um, including fire damage, no matter the cause. They're out there restringing the wire, making sure people have uh, gas and electricity. So from that standpoint, um, better advice, better leadership, our guys will applaud that. We, we will support that. But just changing the faces and not changing the attitudes and the corporate culture is going to do nothing. PG&E's new board is led by somebody I know well, who's from Pennsylvania, who worked for the uh, George uh, 
W. Bush's FERC, and who believes in federal control of and believes in electricity markets. I would argue that we need Californians leading the California private utility, or it should be public. And just for one, just to make it really clear, it was not the workers' fault that there was criminal negligence um, in terms of PG&E cutting corners, cutting safety, and focusing on profits and not reliability and safety. Laura Wisland, how can California have electrical utilities that powers its economy that's safe and also addresses climate change? Is there a tension between green and safety? I don't think there can be. I don't think we have a choice. I think we have to, there's no question that climate change is driving the situation that we're in, and there's no question that we have to keep moving forward with our clean energy transition. We know that there are opportunities, and we need to keep seeking out opportunities to make investments in the grid that are going to make it stronger and safer, and also are going to help us drive towards our clean energy future, because we know that we don't have another option. But, you know, it wasn't just climate change that caused all these devastating wildfires in PG&E territory. It was PG&E's negligence. If it were just climate change, all utilities in the arid west at the urban wildland interface would be experiencing the same kinds of problems. And San Diego Gas and Electric used to experience those in the early 2000s. But then they stopped with their devastating wildfires, by and large. Why? Because plaintiffs' lawyers and victims held them accountable, and they changed their practices, not only in de-energizing or turning off the power, but also in replacing the power poles and replacing the lines and doing the maintenance and doing the tree trimming and all the other things that PG&E has failed to do. When I was first president of the California uh, Public Utilities Commission in 2000, we fined PG&E for failing to use their designated money for tree trimming. We find them over $100 million. That was chump change to them. They continued to pocket necessary maintenance monies and, and profit from it while the system deteriorated. That's why they were convicted of criminal negligence. And that's what we have to change. And that was a failure, frankly, of the Public Utilities Commission and the political leadership for the last 10 years in trusting PG&E and not verifying. They've, they've just lost our trust. They've lost the benefit of the doubt. And now we need to verify, 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 and never trust again. I think it's important to hold PG&E accountable. And I think that it's clear that crimes have been committed and they shouldn't be let off the hook. But I also don't think they are unique in that they've, is that they're not the only utility that's going to be facing climate disaster coming down the road. Even though we've been able to stave off other disasters, there has been wildfires where other utilities in the state have handled it better than PG&E. This is just the, the beginning of what we're going to see in other places in the country. We've got historic drought across the West. We've got million, hundreds of millions of dead trees in the Sierras and the Rocky Mountains. We've got to be thinking about how to seek out investments and solutions that not only make us safer and hold the utilities accountable, but, but, but also deal with climate change. And Loretta Lynch, I tend to think that it's going to cost a lot of investment. And it's, it's, I have a hard time seeing how municipal utilities or, or are, are going to be able to come up with the money required. You know, a lot of this comes down to where's the wealth and power, right? And so how are we going to pay for this future? Who's going to, you know, shareholders don't want to pay. Consumers, we've heard across the state, they're getting their electricity turned off. Uh, already, California has high energy rates. How are we going to pay for this future? Well, municipal utilities have much lower rates on average than private utilities. Why? Because there's no profit. And municipal utilities have much lower wildfire damage than private utilities in California so far. Why? Because they don't scrimp on maintenance, and they don't scrimp on their workers, and they don't try to contract everything out to the lowest bid in order to pocket that profit. It's also a failure of the regulator. Our regulator in California has become a lapdog and not a watchdog. And when I was there, I tried to be a watchdog, and it was hard, because the whole system is about going along and getting along, and scratching their back and not looking at the real problems. And so we have to take a hard look. Remember San Bruno? We should have fixed this right after that. But it took the Public Utilities Commission months, if not years, to actually dig in. And it was only at the insistence of the legislature that they dug into the real causes of that. Now, I would also argue that somebody should have gone to jail. I know that um, the probation officer says, well, you can't, you can't send a corporation to jail, but you can send the corporation executives to jail, and no one was charged. 
And that was a failure of the prosecutors, both on the state and federal level as well. We have to create the right incentives, and the regulator has to be a watchdog that is a very careful steward of the ratepayers' money. And this regulator for the last 10 years has not been. This regulator for the last 10 years has allowed the utilities to spend like drunken sailors on the latest shiny object, like smart meters and bonuses and all sorts of other things, and a whole lot of dividends. And we need to go back and claw back some of that Un, um, for some of that wasteful spending and make sure that the shareholders also pay their fair share. Right. Um, <laughs> former PG&E CEO, I think, walked away with six, $36 million after he left Peter Darby. Uh, Laura Lynch, at one point there was an investigation into Mike Peavy, former head of the Public Utilities Commission, for being very cozy. What happened to that uh, investigation? Did that quietly just... Uh... What happened to that investigation? No charges were brought, even though it's very clear there were secret backroom deals where everybody profited but the ratepayer and the environment. There's not going to be enough money to reach California's clean energy goals if we continue to spin like drunken sailors and make secret backroom deals. There's not going to be enough money to bring California into the 21st century and make sure that we have safe, reliable service and adequately and properly trained workers and enough of them to ensure safe, reliable service if we continue to spend billions of dollars on the latest gadget like smart meters. We're now on the third generation of smart meters. So first we bought the beta version and then the VHS and now I think we're kind of on the DVD version. And why? What has that contributed? It's the failure of the regulator. And it was not only a lapdog when it comes to my successor, Mike Peavy, it was much more than that. And, and who's holding anybody accountable there, both on the regulator and on the uh, corporate side? And that's why I do disagree with one of the key recommendations of the governor's strike force, which is to give the PUC more authority. <laughs> I mean, this PUC has lost the benefit of the doubt as well. And the last thing we need is a biased referee that always calls the balls and strikes for the utility to have more authority to call more balls and strikes. The California economy can't, can't withstand that. There was what, one incidence of, uh, yeah, allowing the utility to shop for judges, judge shopping, to, yeah, to, to pick the, the referee. Hunter Stern, your response to drunken sailors spending money on toys? <laughs> well, um... I have many drunken sailors lately. Uh, no, I, there's I, the the key. I think that Loretta is, is pointing out is there needs to be wise investment and, and and focus investment on the kinds of of equipment and technology that the that all the utilities, not just PG&E, including the the public utilities, um, need to make to ensure that we have the clean energy future that we've promised ourselves here in the state. And and specifically, there's still a lot of leakage meaning uh, inefficiency in the grid. And part of that is going to be new technology investment. Part of it's going to be resilient technology or resilient equipment to withstand wildfire. And this isn't just in California. As, as, as Laura mentioned, this is the West. We're facing drought, um, wildfire, high winds. In the, in the middle part of the country, they're facing um, tornadoes, floods, high winds. And on the eastern side of the country, it's hurricanes, uh, and high winds. So the wind is a big problem, and it's a real threat to any electric infrastructure um, under any conditions. So these are the things that our members are ready to do and want to do. And frankly, I mean, for the people who work at PG&E, and there's uh, 12,000 of our members and plenty of contractors now doing the work that Loretta pointed out should have been done earlier, they need the confidence that, the, that somebody is going to be there so that they can keep working and keep serving you. Uh, and right now, that's a little uncertain. Um, so we do need some changes um, to not to, to make PG&E whole. Keep, as, as everybody has said, let's make them accountable. Our members will, will second that every, every, every day of the week. But they also need to know that they're going to have a job tomorrow and that they can keep serving you. And that's, that's a little bit more of a difficult dance. So we do have some concerns. Laura Wislin, some people would say that, the, that this uh, instability of, of large utilities points to a decentralized future, whether it's microgrids where, where a power is generated more closely to where it's used, perhaps on your rooftop. How do you see that as a, as a future? Are we, is this pushing us faster toward a decentralized energy future? I think it is. I think that the more we spread our eggs amongst many baskets, the safer and more resilient our grid is going to be. So we know we're learning that putting all our uh, 
depending on a couple large-scale centralized power plants for all of our electricity needs makes us very, very vulnerable. Depending on one or two sources of fuel that can be disrupted in any sort of uh, extreme weather event makes us very, very vulnerable. So a safer grid, a cleaner grid, a more resilient grid, a more strong grid is going to be one that has lots of, that draws upon lots of different types of clean fuel to generate electricity, that is generating electricity in large-scale plants, in very small distributed plants, so that we can de-energize sections of the grid and also continue to provide safe and reliable power because we have backup battery storage right there on site. We're going to need it all if we're going to actually take a crack at climate change. Hunter Stern, is that a threat to union labor? Because a lot of the installers on the rooftops don't use union workers. Some of the uh, community choice aggregators, community uh, power agencies are cutting corners, not using union labor. Well, um, I don't think so. Not in the long term. Uh, right now, there is this sort of this separation between the very small installations on people's roofs um, and then the larger uh, utility scale or large scale uh, uh, photovoltaic uh, units that are out and, and, and being installed. But I think over time, uh, the con concept of a community um, uh, size distribution system will work. Certainly the grid is now or the electric lines are now two way. You know, for 100 years, they were one way streets and now they're two way streets. Um, it's important. It's a big change. But no, I think we eventually we can do that work and we'll continue to do that work. The, the threat comes if there's uncertainty about financing any of this, because it is going to cost money. And how do we do so in a way which is affordable for everybody? I think that's a more serious threat. Loretta Lynch. Well, and the way you do so that's affordable for everybody is to make hard choices. There's a very small silver lining that comes from these horrible disasters. And that's the choice of are we going to have local energy democracy with clean local power and resilient localities, resilient small communities? Or are we going to build, rebuild these huge long-line transmission lines across lots of states and have that command and control energy infrastructure again? We're going to have to build something, and we can't choose everything. That was the mistake of the lapdog regulators. Just spend and spend and spend and choose everything. So that when disaster comes and costs rise, there's no give in that ratepayer bill um, to be able to accommodate the disaster. So let's make wise choices for clean energy in localities built by Californians for Californians. So some of the biggest advocates, Loretta Lynch, of renewable energy will say we have all the sun we need and we, if we could just capture it in the desert and, and ship it to the, to the load centers, they say, you know, the, the, the population centers. We have all the wind we need. We have the Saudi Arabia of wind in the middle of the United States. If we could just capture all that wind in Iowa and elsewhere and ship it. But that's transmission lines that you're saying that's the wrong way to go? Absolutely, because that electron from Kansas cannot get to Coachella. Just it's physics. So the electrons go where they're made. So we can buy as a financial instrument electrons from Kansas, but they're going to be used in Kansas and Colorado. So instead, if we want to keep the lights on with actual clean energy in California, you need to build it in California. And I take great um, issue with this idea that we have too much because we are still not at 50% renewable. We are still at 70% fossil, California. So we want to get to 50%. We need to retire those old, clunky, stinking gas plants that are primarily located in disadvantaged communities where they're causing horrible air pollution burdens and replace that with in-state renewables to clean up our air, to provide jobs, and to help our economy. Laura Wisland, uh, during some parts of the day, California does have too much renewable energy, and, and Jerry Brown, previous governor, wanted to ship that to uh, other western states and then buy back their energy uh, later in the day, have a regional energy system. What do you think about that? So California has an incredible solar resource, and the good news about that is that the cost of building solar small scale and large scale has come down considerably. So there's no question, it's a no-brainer that we should be developing all the in-state solar we can. It makes sense. It's true, though. There's sometimes of the day, some seasons of the year, where the solar resource is going gangbusters, it's the middle of the day, and we, we don't have enough electricity demand. We have too much clean energy. And we don't want to waste those clean electrons. We want to find a home for them. And if we can figure out a way for someone else to take them and instead turn down their fossil plants, 
that's a win for the climate, and that's a, also a win for the solar generator. So I think it is important to be, while we're emphasizing as much clean local generation as possible, because there are important employment benefits from that, there are important grid resiliency, community safety benefits from that, I don't think that we should think of California as an electricity island, because that's not the way we function today. And if we're thinking about not just California make, moving, making strides on climate, but bringing along the rest of the country, we do need to work and, and, and find efficiencies with other Western states as best we can to bring them along, help with their clean energy transition, and also make this transition as cost-effective as possible. Loretta, is your approach too parochial? <laughs> I don't know. I think California first, when we're footing the bill and we're, and we're facing the problem, is the right place to be. <laughs> and yes, I would love for Wyoming a coal state and Montana a coal state and Colorado a coal state to see the light. But under this Trump administration, do I want to cede control, California's control over their clean energy future to the feds or to some regional group? Absolutely not. Hopefully, by our economic benefit and by our best practices, other states will come along. But I, I think that actually there are other utilities in other states that do many things better than California. And we do have lessons to learn about fire safety, about wildfire prevention from utilities in Arizona and Nevada and Oregon. Um, but just to uh, make clear one fact, we trade now with the rest of the West every hour of every day. So, but we trade on our terms in, in largely a market that we designed, we being California. And I don't want to give up that control, especially in these perilous times <laughs> where the Trump administration is all coal all the time. Lord Lynch, before we go to audience questions, I want to come back to climate. Is this instability going to hurt development of renewable energy, California's climate goals? No, it's not as if the utilities were some beneficent entity that decided they were going to go green. They went green because state laws mandated that they had to go green. So this is all about what state law mandates and what a regulator that's a watchdog actually enforces. So Oregon has mandates. They're reaching their climate mandates. Nevada has mandates. Um, and I believe their utilities are even going beyond their uh, state mandates for some other reasons. So... They're only doing what they have to do. They're only doing what they have to do. And so California needs to continue to be the leader in making sure that we turn off those old gas plants. The reason we have too much solar is because solar is considered last in. Gas is first. Well, let's turn off the gas. We'll have plenty of room for solar, especially with the new and emerging technology of energy storage, which we need to build a whole lot more of. Yeah, and I, I, yeah I just want to add that the energy storage right now is the, is the big next step. Um, there is plenty of solar at times uh, during the day uh, in California, but not every day and certainly not all day long. Uh, it's still an intermittent resource. So the continual increase in investment in storage is really going to iron out those, those bumps or what people call the so-called duck curve, this curve in, of, of generation in certain days. And that storage is going to help reduce our reliance on gas. So there's some gas that does run in the middle of the day because it's the thing that's providing reliability for the grid. And so we need to do better and go faster at bringing on clean technologies that can provi provide those grid reliability services so we can walk away from gas faster. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, California Gas and Electric and their recent bankruptcy. Loretta Lynch is former uh, litigator and past president of the California Public Utilities Commission. Also with us here at Climate One are Hunter Stern, business representative of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 1245, and Laura Wislin, senior manager of Western States Energy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We're talking about PG&E and its bankruptcy and wildfires in California. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our next segment of audience questions, invite you up there to ask one, one part comment or question. Welcome. Thanks. Lila Holzman. I work at As You So, a shareholder advocacy group. We work with utilities across the country, and I'm wondering if this panel could talk a bit about um, how to incentivize utilities like PG&E and others to take the kind of actions that you've been talking about. So just, you know, as the utilities continue to build out gas infrastructure and continue to not take the actions that a lot of you seem to think that they should be taking, how do you align their incentives to be productive? Loretta Lynch, you've worked with uh, utilities in the South, including uh, Alabama and George Wallace the Fourth. Tell us about yeah, uh, what other utilities uh, might be incentivized. You use sticks and not carrots. <laughs> That's the problem. 
if you if you just Especially in the south huh? if yeah. you just feed them carrots they just want more carrots and prices go up if you feed them sticks you fine you say no you enforce you sue then they'll do the right thing and you do it t or use it or lose it you use the money on tree trimming and you use the money on other safety changes or you lose it you don't get to pocket it or use it for something else that the utility but not california thinks is important and don't let um the ratepayer pay for wall street uh consultants who PG&E spent $300 million on about five or 10 years ago to tell them how to cut their workforce and how to cut the corners. The shareholders should pay for that, or frankly, it just shouldn't be allowed to be charged at all. Because we need more workers, we need more safety folks, and we need more training, or we need to make sure that they keep their training up to snuff, which I think they're engaged in doing, to make me be able to sleep at night. Hunter Stern, is that true, that the company paid $300 million to, to cut your workers? Um, Yes, it is true. Uh, and uh, the firm was Accenture, and it was a very convoluted and unsuccessful process. It's amazing we've got this far into this without hearing that. Um, <laughs> let's uh, hold another chapter, that one, uh, when PG&E shipped money out of state and then declared bankruptcy. Uh, let's go to our next question. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm curious if what the clean energy and also climate risk implications are in terms of how land is developed, so urban versus suburban versus rural, and if that means anything for the way that we choose to develop in the future. If we sort of do more sprawl or more urban density, how does that affect all these factors that ultimately affect PG&E and all of us? Well, I will say um, a lot of the concern that went through the wildfire conference commi committee last year in the legislature was the development of pushing de large-scale suburban development into high fire danger areas um, to the point where when the new fire maps were drawn about 18 months ago, 50% um, of PG&E's service territory is in high fire danger. And there are, I think, one in 12 homes are now located in high fire danger areas. And that, that's a fundamental change in, in how our state, how we live. And that's, that's everybody. And it doesn't, it's way beyond utility cost wildfire. That's any fire. So it's, that's a big change as well as how we manage our forests, both of those areas. I'm Greg Dalton, and this is Climate One. You've just heard from Hunter Stern of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Loretta Lynch, former president of the California Public Utilities Commission, and Laura Wisland of the Union of Concerned Scientists. In the first half of our show, we spoke with Diane Grunick, a former regulator, Mark Tony from the Utility Reform Network, and J.D. Morris with the San Francisco Chronicle. We want to hear from you, so please write a review wherever you get your podcasts. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Andrew Stelzer reports from the field. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.